I find today's passage one of the most intriguing miracles in the Gospels. You know, recently we've looked at a number of different miracles. Each had people that were in great need, and they have that need met. And in the meeting of that need, there's usually been some teaching about the truth of the kingdom. Today, the need is a bit more obscure, and certainly that it needs this miracle. But actually, it's an intriguing miracle because we don't actually see the miracle occur. The miracle is set up, ready to occur. But we don't see the fish and we don't see the coin. But we do see the hope that is there. The tax that is being collected, the temple tax, is there for the general running of that worship space. It's so that food can be prepared. It's so that things can be washed. It's so that priests can get paid. It's like how we use our offering on a regular basis. And some of it is used here and some of it goes elsewhere to the central church funds for the general running of the church, for training ministers, for ensuring that there is mission, different activities. And this tax, originally half a shekel now to drachma, is described back in Exodus 30 as having regards to the people's atonement. It was on top of the normal tithe, on top of giving 10% of what you earned. But that was partly because at the time it was instituted, they were still in the wilderness all they had to live on was the manna that the Lord was providing. And 10% of nothing is 10% of, well, oh, not very much, is it, you know? It comes out at. Uh, but there was a need to fund the tabernacle. There was a need later to fund the temple. And so... This tax was paid originally from the accumulated wealth that was carried out of Egypt. It was a tax that was paid for their atonement from the process of their release. Now, quite unlike the other taxes that were collected... At that time, the taxes that Zacchaeus or Matthew collected, there was honour in paying this tax. It was a patriotic duty of every Hebrew to remember the freedom that God has given his people. 
He led them from the captivity of Egypt. He gave them this freedom. So it was right to remember that and to give thanks for what has gone on before in that giving. And for the most part, there was not the swindling and shortchanging that goes on, at least not in the provinces. In Jerusalem, things were a bit different. It's because of the collecting of this tax, the temple tax, that the money changers had set themselves up, usually about a month before Passover, in the courts of the temple. So some would pay this charge when they got to Jerusalem, but many others would, as in this instance, be met by local tax collectors who would gather it in here in Capernaum. But there were people who were exempt. People that didn't need to pay, including rabbis. So the question of whether Jesus pays is interesting. The tax collector comes and says, your teacher, they know who Jesus is. And yet they're coming, asking whether he pays the tax, even though he's tax exempt. The collectors who come to Peter are not asking for the money. What they're asking is how patriotic are you? Are you good Hebrews? Do you honour what has gone on before? If you don't pay the tax, you're not very Hebrew. I guess if I was north of the border, I might make the analogy of those in Scotland who say, if you're not for independence, you must be unpatriotic. The two thoughts have been linked in a way that need not be true, but yet they are often linked. Peter is therefore put in an interesting position by those who come requesting the tax. Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Peter could have said, he's a teacher. You've answered the question yourself. He doesn't have to pay the temple tax. Or he could have said, yes, we'll pay it directly when we go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. But he doesn't. Simon Peter, in his usual impulsive way, simply blurts out, yes, he does. And then has to think about what he has said, what commitment he has made. A commitment he has made, not just for himself, but a commitment for Jesus. 
to pay the tax. Sometimes we volunteer ourselves, sometimes we volunteer others, making a commitment that we might later regret. People sometimes might rather wish we hadn't said what we say. How do we react when we feel we've been dropped right in it from a great height? Do we just accept it that others make mistakes? Or do we cause difficulties? And I wonder how Peter is feeling as he heads indoors to tell Jesus about what he has done and the decision that he has made, the commitment. Jesus, of course, doesn't have to wait for the disciple to come in the door. He already knows what's going on. You can probably see a bit of worry in Simon Peter's face. And he will reassure his friend that all will be well. It might not be what he expected to happen, but all will be well. Whatever our worry or concern about the path ahead, the decisions we have made, the decisions we will make, the Lord will give strength and guide us forward. But we have to approach those concerns and seek his will and the path that he would have us choose. In the passage, Jesus guides the thinking of the disciple with the very first words that he says. What do you think, Simon? What do you think? It was in the previous chapter just that Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter. That was after the disciple had recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one who would redeem his people. In chapter 17, back the chapter that our passage comes from, the writer, Matthew, refers to the disciple as Peter. Be it at the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountainside or here in the town of Capernaum, where the disciple's mother-in-law lives. It is Peter. But the Lord returns him to the name Simon. And he speaks it gently. He reminds him who he is, a humble fisherman, and starts to open the door to a solution. But also reminds him with that simple name of the recent new name. Jesus is an encourager. He's not going to make difficulties. He's going to seek the way ahead and help Simon Peter discover it. 
And so the question comes, who should pay a tax? Who is tax exempt? Now, some of us might have to use accountants to sort out our tax, to identify where we must pay it, that we pay the right amount. Also, maybe to see how we can reduce it just a little bit. You know, discounting certain items, bits of expenditure, bits of giving, bits of past losses, some other factor. The son of a king does not pay a king's tax. It should be completely wiped out, nothing there to pay. The redeemer need not pay a redemption tax, which is what this is. But Jesus has not limited the language by talking of the son of a king, but uses the word sons, plural. In a modern version of the NIV, keep changing odd little words, but in the same Bible translation, but a slightly newer one, instead of sons, it says children at this point. The children of the king. God's son is exempt from the temple tax. But more than that, the followers of Jesus are children of God. It is not only the Lord who is accepted from paying, but it is Peter too. Jesus knows his rights. He knows he does not have to pay up. There's no compulsion on him. He's a rabbi, first off, but he's also the son of God. And it is God's holy temple. But now the commitment has been made, there is a responsibility to pay it. It would be awkward in the least for Peter and the tax collectors to go back on that previous conversation and to revisit it. It would call into question the word of the disciple. It would call into question the integrity of Jesus and his followers. This cannot be allowed. And so as a man of integrity, as a man of honour, as a man who will not seek offence, Peter will pay. But Jesus does not send Peter to Judas, the purse keeper, to ask for money. That again would cause offence and embarrassment. Instead, Simon the fisherman is to go fishing. He is to do what he knows how to do. He is to serve the Lord and do his duty by doing what he has done many times. He is to go 
and fish. Now, of course, his normal way of fishing is with a net, which he would cast. He would throw it out, sometimes not catching anything, you might remember. And then again, with the Lord's advice, throwing it on the other side, having a net too big to pull in. But here, Jesus sends him to go and fish with a line. He is not to catch a whole school of fish. He's not to catch a hundred or more, which could be sold. They've not all needed. God will bring his divine providence to bear simply through one fish caught on a hooked line. Inside the mouth, the coin will be enough to cover two people's tax, Peter and Jesus. There will be no shame. No one need know where the money came from. And the tax which remembered the saving grace of God would be paid in full by the grace of God in this instance. We must always be careful when we think about what is our right. What is the thing that we should have? Because we have a Lord who gave up his rights. Not just the right to be tax-exempt, He took the responsibility for our actions. He had the right to live, but he suffered and died and paid the price for our sins. Do we demand our rights? even when doing so causes others difficulties? Or instead, do we exercise responsibility? Sometimes rights and responsibility go hand in hand, particularly to see the righteousness and justice that God requires. But at other times, what we want to happen and what needs to happen can be two different things. As we approach the annual meeting and decisions that need to be taken, do we demand our favoured outcome or do we seek the way that serves God and serves the church? Do we demand rights Or do we always seek to exercise responsibility?